This episode is brought to you by our friends at Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. CBTS exists to provide ministerial training in the context of a confessional local church. They are, among other things, confessional, Baptist, affordable, and accessible. They are also now fully accredited by the Association of Reformed Theological Seminaries. You can learn more about them at their website, which is cbtseminary.org. Again, that is cbtseminary.org. The Covenant Podcast exists to discuss doctrine, theology, and the biblical worldview from a covenantal Baptist perspective. We pray that this resource will be edifying to you and glorifying to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, let's get started. Jimmy Johnson here with my co-host Austin McCormick. Today we have Dr. Craig Carter with us. Dr. Carter has served as a pastor for seven years in Baptist churches. He has also been a professor at several different institutions, or at least a couple it looks like. Currently, he serves at Tyndale University College and teaches full-time there. Dr. Carter, would you care to fill in some of the gaps there and, and welcome on the podcast? Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm a Canadian. We were uh, brought up in New Brunswick, uh, east coast of Canada, and I've been living here in Toronto for the last uh, 20 years. Um, I was at first VP academic for a while at Tyndale and now I've been a professor uh, teaching full-time for the last 15 years. And um, yeah, I'm married, uh, three kids, five grandchildren, and um, I, uh, I love theology, and I, I'm also on staff part-time at our church as a, a theologian in residence, and I, I preach about five or six times a year. I teach adult Sunday school every week, and I teach some uh, um, college, intro college level courses to lay people. Um, so we're just uh, finishing up the uh, survey of the Old Testament with about 20 men on Thursday night, and we're going to be going into the New Testament in the fall. So, um, so yeah, so that's what I do. Well, thank you so much for coming on. You also recently wrote, or at least the book was published, Interpreting Scripture with the Great Tradition, and we're going to be talking about that a little bit in this episode. Austin, you care to start us off with the first question? Yeah, uh, Dr. Carter, thank you for joining the podcast again today. Before we get into some details within the book that Jimmy just mentioned, uh, can you give us and our audience a synopsis of what your book is about, who you are writing to, and what you're trying to do in your book? Well, um, I don't mean this to sound uh, uh, presumptuous, but um, really the book is written to pastors to uh, help them work through the unresolved problems that their seminary or college hermeneutics course might have left them with. Um, I start out the book by talking about how after getting my MDiv and becoming a full-time pastor, the first Good Friday service I wanted to preach on Isaiah 53. And the problem is that I knew Isaiah 53 is about the death and resurrection of Christ. Um, but I, I also knew that on the basis of the hermeneutical theory I was taught in seminary, you can't really say that it's about Christ. 
um, if the meaning of the text is this is the is is restricted to what the human author consciously intended to say to his audience in the original situation, um, then it's very difficult to to see this text as a as uh, talking about Christ and and so all the commentaries. Um, are basically saying that it's uh, it, it's uh, the prophet himself, it's Jeremiah. It's there are a whole lot of theories about who this suffering servant is, um, and so critical scholarship for the last hundred years has um, uh, you know if you open your average um, critical scholar uh, scholarly commentary, um, you'll get every theory in the books, but you, you it does not say it's about Christ. Now, the New Testament clearly understands it to be about Christ. So this creates a problem. How can our hermeneutics be in conflict with the way that the apostles read the Old Testament? That seems to me to be a very large problem. The whole of Christianity is based on the idea that, that, the, that Christ fulfills the Old Testament. That's the apostolic message. So if Christ doesn't fulfill the, the, the Old Testament, um, well, then Christianity is false. And... Um, it doesn't do any good to say, well, in a case like, uh, say, Isaiah 7.14 and Matthew uh, uh, 123, that, it, that you can say, well, because the inspired New Testament author says this text is about Jesus, um, therefore it is, and we can take that on. That doesn't work. I mean, imagine uh, Paul going into the synagogue on the first Sabbath day as he enters a new city preaching Christ, and he's debating with the with the people in the synagogue. Um, as, a, as a Second Temple Jew, he's debating other Second Temple Jews, and he's saying that Jesus is the Messiah. And he's using Old Testament scriptures to prove that. And if they say to him, look, you're just reading Jesus in to the Old Testament. And if he agrees with them, it's game over. He's not going to get any converts that way. There's no way that he wins that argument. And so he's got to prove that he's reading Christ out of the scriptures. He's got you know, that what Jesus said to the disciples on the road to Emmaus is true, that you should have seen me in these scriptures. I'm, I'm in the law and the prophets everywhere. You should have seen that, and you should have understood it. Um, and that would be Paul's message, that Christ really is it. So my, my problem was, well, how is Christ really in the Old Testament text? That was the problem I was wrestling with. And I found that um, uh, historical critical studies do not give you the answer, but I think the historical critical method has had uh, enough impact on even the conservative wing of uh, modern scholarship. Even, even conservative scholars um, have, have bought into the theory that the meaning of the text can only be what the human author consciously intended, single meaning theory. And, uh, then what happens is that pastors like me would just go ahead and preach Isaiah 53 as Christ. And basically, we just break the hermeneutical rules. I mean, so you've got seminaries, uh, pastors graduating from seminary, and they take their hermeneutics books and figuratively throw them in the garbage and start preaching the Bible the way the apostles preached the Bible, the way they preaching the Old Testament the way the apostles preached the Old Testament. I don't think that's a healthy situation. Uh, I think we need to bring our theory into alignment with our best practices. And so the book is an attempt to ask the question, if we really were to interpret the Old Testament the way that the apostles did, 
And we wanted to develop a theory of hermeneutics to do that. How, what, how would, what would be entailed in that? And that's, that's the, book, the question the book is trying to answer. In the first part of your book, you, you kind of give some foundations that have to be understood to interpret the Bible and, and how you suggest later in the book. And, and I believe off the top of my head, I don't have them written out right here, but the Nicene understanding of God and then a, a doctrine of inspiration that comes from that and then a metaphysic that is produced out of that. So kind of a Christian Platonism is what you suggest. So the next question begins to get into some of these three points. What does it mean to understand the Bible as inspired by God? Okay, well, first of all, um, I think that you cannot read the Bible like any other book. That's another fallacy of modern hermeneutics. We have to read the Bible as what it is. Any scientific investigation has to have a methodology that is governed um, by the nature of the object under investigation. So if you are going to study God, you can't use the same methods that you would use to study something that is empirically accessible. You have to have a method that is appropriate to what you're studying. And, this, the, and so, um, so the first thing is we have to approach the Bible as inspired. So the Bible is a unique book. And for me, uh, I think evangelicals have a bit of a truncated uh, understanding of inspiration in that it means basically authority. The Bible is inspired, that means it's authoritative. Now, in determining what, what it says, we, we just use secular hermeneutics for that. But when we finally figure out what it means, what it says, then we take that as authoritative from God. I would see it, I would see inspiration as having a much bigger impact on the way we interpret. Uh, so God, uh, God is, um, I, I believe in classical theism. I believe that God works as the first cause of the universe and that he creates creatures with natures. And when the creatures follow those natures and act according to their natures, the end result of what happens is what God wants to get done. So God doesn't have to intervene in a miraculous way to accomplish his will. Now, sometimes he does. And the key is to understand, though, that God is at work in the world all the time through primary and secondary causes, which we call miracles and providence. So in the Bible, you, you clearly have some instances where the writer gets information from God in a supernatural, miraculous way that he could not ever have hoped to have gotten in, in any natural way. So John is taken up into heaven. He sees things. He hears things. The angel says, write this down. Um, this is clearly supernatural, miraculous inspiration. But on the other hand, you have other instances of the Bible where you have Luke uh, telling Theophilus that he's, he's done his research. It's like writing a, a biography. He's gone and he's interviewed eyewitness testimony, eyewitnesses, got their testimonies, written it down. He shaped it into a gospel. Um, that, that looks like a very natural problem. And um, the Bible is a combination of those two things. The key thing to understand is that regardless of whether a given passage is inspired through a miraculous means or through providential means, the end result, that is the text, is equally inspired in both cases. It's exactly what God intends it to be. And the text is where the inspiration is located, not in the writer. So the, the text is, is, has two authors. It has the human author and it has the divine author. So what I mean by inspiration 
is that God is, uh, has, 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 has caused the, the text to come into being in such a way that he is ultimately the author of it. He is the author through the human authors, but he is the author of it. Now, this has several implications, for, which are huge for hermeneutics. One is that the Bible is a unity. So you've got 66 books, 40 authors, 1,500 years, three languages, but there's one book. The one-bookness of the Bible is a miracle of inspiration. There's no way that the Bible can be one book uh, on naturalistic terms. It's just impossible. So the fact that it's a unified book, that, it's, that it has one theme, which is Christ, Christ promised, Christ fulfilled, um, the fact that it that it um, that it is is that that it contains both divine and and what I call divine authorial intent and human authorial intent. Now the big problem in hermeneutics is how to relate these two things. Um, you, you get into problems if you start the, the church in doing what was called allegorical interpretation. The problem with 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 that but it's not limited to just allegorical. This problem is, is also found in the historical critical approach as well. But the problem is that you um, detach the meaning of the text completely from the human authorial intent. And once that happens, you can claim that the divine authorial intent might be anything at all. Now, <clears throat> in the problem there is then that you, you need to somehow see that God in, the in, meaning of inspiration is that the human authorial intent will never be contradictory, contradicted by the divine authorial intent. The two will work harmoniously together. <clears throat> the problem is that you can go wrong in two ways. You can, either, you can either pull them so far apart that they begin to be two different things. And that's, uh, that's the typical danger of allegorical. The other thing is you can collapse them uh, so tightly together so that you, be, you in effect reduce the divine authorial intent to the human authorial intent and nothing more. And that's what we've got. That's what we're dealing with in the mod. That's the modern problem. So the ancient problem was more the allegorical problem. The, the modern problem is, but both, but the, the, as I try to outline in the history of hermeneutics in, in, in the book, the church wrestled with this and the tradition struggled with this. And eventually the way it worked, the way that people came to see the relationship between the two um, divine and human authorial intent, uh, in the late Middle Ages, we see it really crystallizing in Nicholas of Lyra and Thomas Aquinas and then in John Calvin, that, that you, they, they, they began to talk about the, um, the literal sense as the literal sense was the human authorial intention. And... But, but they didn't want to talk about, they were talking about literal and allegorical as if they were two different things. And this was, this was unsatisfactory. This was difficult because the, when you talk about the literal and the spiritual meaning as if they were different, there's always the danger that the spiritual is going to drift off too far from the literal and, and even replace the literal. So, so they began to talk in terms of the extended literal sense or the, um, the uh, the um, I forget what, what's the other adjective the extended or the, the, the that the spiritual sense is nothing but an extension of the literal sense so there's more more and, and they wanted to talk about the literal sense as being the divine authorial intention 
So if you say, what does the Bible literally mean? It literally means what God says through it. It's not that there's a literal meaning that's human, and then there's a divine meaning that is sort of uh, floating in a, in a detached way that we subjectively impose on the text, but the literal meaning is actually the, little, the meaning that God has for the, the meaning that God means to say, what he means to say through the text. Um, so I would say that the... Um, is of inspiration. Inspiration uh, completely governs hermeneutics. Like, like it's, not just some, it's not just a matter of the, the, the final result is authoritatively true, but it, it, it's the very fact that the Bible is inspired that makes it the kind of that it is with the kinds of characteristics that it has so that you can discern within it this deeper spiritual meaning that goes beyond the human authorial intention and yet is not and is not reducible to it, but yet does not go so far as to contradict it or escape it and become free floating by itself and have no relationship to it. The Bible is structured in two testaments, which are promise and fulfillment. And, and it's very important that we let the Old Testament be the Old Testament, uh, because it's not just the new. Um, Augustine's famous maxim, the old is in the new, the new is in the old concealed. The old, the new is in the old revealed. The sorry, I can't say it this morning. <laughs> Too early in the morning, but you, but you, you, you probably can guess how it goes. The idea is that the New Testament is concealed in the Old Testament, and it's revealed. What what is really there in the Old Testament doesn't actually get revealed until the New Testament, until Christ comes and fulfills. But what is revealed really was there all along. That's the point I want to make. That's, that's, the, that's the critical point that our hermeneutics has to, has to account for. If our, hermeneutics, if our hermeneutical theory does not account for the fact that what is revealed in the New Testament was there in the Old Testament all along, then basically we've introduced uh, subjectivism. Uh, we're saying Paul, just, Paul and the other apostles just subjectively read Jesus into the Old Testament, and uh, there would be no reason to believe that they, the, the, the apostolic proclamation was true in that case. It would be just Paul practicing reader response theory in the first century, and there would be no authority to it. And, and it, wouldn't be, it wouldn't require a, uh, an inspired book to, to see it that way. Um, the, the only way that Christ can be in the Old Testament is if God, in fact, has inspired the Old Testament writer to write something that includes a meaning that was even hidden to the writer himself to a certain extent. And that's exactly what you see in 1 Peter 1, 10 to 12. Um, Peter there talks about the prophets searching and inquiring diligently as to what time and person the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he talked about the Christ. In other words, Peter is saying, uh, you can see divine and human authorial intent there in First Peter 1, 10 to 12, uh, pretty explicitly. Um, there's the spirit in them speaking, and there's the conscious mind of the writer, and these two things are not simply identical. So you can see that Peter's, uh, Peter's understanding of what the prophets were doing was that they were, as human beings, um, understanding a certain amount of what God was inspiring them to write but not understanding it all in its depth as we understand it in the light of Christ today. So yeah, inspiration is, is what I'm trying to really do is develop a hermeneutics that is, that requires inspiration to make sense. Mm -hmm. 
Dr. <clears throat> Dr. Carter, how does the nature of God affect our understanding of reality and inspiration? I know you hinted at this a little bit in your last uh, answer. And additionally, what is Nicene Orthodoxy? Yeah. Um, okay. If I, if I'm going to, I'm going to answer the first part first and remind me to come back to Nicene Orthodoxy. Um, the big problem uh, in the modern world is that um, ever since Kant, we have had a, um, the Western world has descended into uh, a belief in philosophical naturalism. It's not quite as simple as crude materialism. Uh, that's where everything is reduced to matter, as swirling atoms. It's a little more complicated than that. Um, but naturalism, as opposed to materialism, is simply the, the affirmation that there is no transcendent God, that the cosmos, uh, however mysterious it may be, and, and even though if even if you take the whole, you know, even if you 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 consider the cosmos to contain mysteries such as are investigated, for example, in the Star Trek show, you know, where they encounter aliens who are uh, completely pure energy with no material uh, bodies at all. That's all still a cosmos that is that is characterized by philosophical naturalism. Star, the Star Trek universe is uh, everything that's in that universe, including the you know in Deep Space Nine they have the the Bajorans worship these the gods of the wormhole. Well, they're gods in the sense that the Greek and Roman gods were gods, uh, but they're part of the cosmos. They're they're beings within the cosmos. They may be very mysterious. They may be very different from us, but they're in the cosmos with us. They're not transcendent of the cosmos. They're not the transcendent creator. Now, the problem is that um, if you accept philosophical naturalism, if you think that Hume demolished substance metaphysics and 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 proved that you disproved all the the, the so-called proofs of the existence of God, if Hume really demolished all that and Kant believed that Hume had done that. So Kant built his critical philosophy, assuming that uh, the old supernatural worldview, uh, the old metaphysics was gone and irretrievable. That's what that was Kant's assumption. And so Kant uh, began to, uh, to, to think about, well, how do we find truth? And he, 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 he had to work within philosophical naturalism as the framework. And he wanted to try and develop a, a notion of truth within that context. And, and after Kant, that's the history of modern theology and philosophy, is trying to, to develop our understanding of reality within the constraints of philosophical naturalism. So, um, so, so what I call the liberal project is the has two wings and in one wing is the historical critical study of the bible that goes back to spinoza the other is the uh, doctrinal revision that goes back to schleiermacher and both schleiermacher and spinoza are pantheists which is a kind of philosophical naturalism um, and so what the what the liberal project is trying to do is to restate christianity within the boundaries of philosophical naturalism it's trying to save as much Christian doctrine, as many Christian words and ideas as possible, as much of the Bible as possible, but within the constraints of philosophical naturalism. You can't have any truly transcendent God. 
um, so in, this, in, in the liberal project. So you've got to reconceive God. So you've got to reconceive him basically in one of two ways or a combination. He either has to be identified cosmos itself, in some kind of pantheism, or he needs to be a being within the cosmos of some kind. And, uh, and, and so what we call, what, what we see in the concern, the, the liberal side of the liberal project, you know, on, on the biblical study side, that's the Jesus seminar. That's the, the people who are really radical. On the conservative side, you have evangelicals trying to practice methodological naturalism, but not being committed to naturalism completely. They're trying to sort of play both sides of the street. Um, on the doctrinal side, you have the most extreme is the, the, uh, the dynamic panentheism of Moltmann or process theology where God is no longer even personal. And on the conservative side, you would have theistic personalism. So theistic personalism is where you, you see God as, well, he's, he's like Zeus. He's like uh, one of the Greek gods. Uh, he's, he's a being within the cosmos. And so what Christians try to do is they try to maximize um, the attributes of this, of this essentially theistic personalist concept of God. So first of all, we get rid of all the others. There's only one. Um, so it's like, it's like the Greek pantheon, but reduced to one. And that one is exalted in every way possible. So we try to think of him as the biggest, strongest, oldest, wisest, most powerful uh, being in the world. And so you get people talking about how God is a mind or God is a person, um, but he's a very powerful one without limitations, et cetera, et cetera. This is theistic personalism, and it's rampant today, uh, even among evangelicals. You even have evangelicals who believe in a theistic personalist concept of God. What is lost here is true transcendence. The, the biblical God and the God of classical orthodoxy is the transcendent creator and the sovereign Lord of history who alone is to be worshiped. And as the transcendent creator, God is not, his being is different from the being of created reality. He's not an extension of created reality. reality. Uh, the only way we can even speak about him is analogically. Uh, we cannot define God. We cannot rationally comprehend God because God is beyond uh, all creaturely comprehension. Um, God is uh, the, the, the simple, perfect, immutable, uh, eternal, self-existent first cause of the universe. That's what God is in classical theism. Now, you asked me what Nicene Orthodoxy is. I believe that Nicene Orthodoxy is, the best way to conceptualize it is to think of classical theism combined with Trinitarian biblical theology. That's, what classic, that's the classical Nicene Orthodox view of God. The Nicene fathers, the pro-Nicene theologians of the fourth century, were, uh, they believed that God is simple. They believed that God is eternal. They believed that God is immutable, impassable. Um, but they also believed, and this was the astonishing thing, they believed that the apostolic proclamation was that that this simple, immutable, impassable, eternal, self-existent first cause of all things who is beyond the cosmos and transcendent of it has spoken in Israel's history through the prophets 
and has in these last days become uh, a man in the person of Jesus. And the incarnation is this eternal God becoming uh, man and becoming um, for us and for our salvation. This is the astonishing. Now, there's no theory as to how this can happen. Um, nobody in the New Testament or in the early church devised some kind of, every theory of how it would be rationally comprehensible is, her, is heresy. Um, there is no theory. All, all we can say is, we know it's true because it happened. Uh, the, the disciples are confronted with the risen Lord Jesus Christ. He commands them to go and preach the gospel to all nations. He doesn't explain how this is possible. He just says, this is what has happened. This is what you are to say. So the creeds are not trying to give explanations for how the Trinity and incarnation are possible. The, the creeds are attempts to say uh, to, to, to declare the gospel message, the, the, the what has happened, in such a way that we don't uh, distort it, that we don't deny part of it in the process of saying. So what do we have to say in order to communicate the incredible truth of what has actually happened in history uh, and, and who this one is who has become incarnate? What do we have to say in order to communicate that? That's what Nicaea and Constantinople and Chalcedon are, are all about. So, so, apost so, so, so if you ask me, what is Nicene Orthodoxy? The short answer is, it is classical theism um, wedded to and integrated with a, a, a biblical um, Trinitarian understanding of who God is. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who had the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, is in fact the simple eternal, immutable, self-existent first cause of the universe. This is the astonished message that the church proclaims to the world. And uh, this is what cannot be proclaimed in the liberal project. And that's why philosophical, philosophical naturalism has to be rejected. And we have to stop playing this game called the liberal project and go back and recover Nicene Orthodoxy from before the modern period. The next question, I'm actually going to combine some of the questions we have here, is what are metaphysics and, and what would you describe as the, the Christian metaphysic that, that the great tradition held to and, and kind of just parse that out for us? Well, it's a big question and, and it would take, you know, mm -hmm. weeks but to, to answer it properly. But essentially, the for the beginner who's trying to think about this, think about physics and metaphysics. Meta means above or beyond. So physics studies uh, bodies in motion. Physics studies the material world that we can ac access with our five senses. Um, so physics is studying the material world, the, the world that we can see and measure. Metaphysics is what is behind that world is being at a more general level. We can talk about the being of a, of a squirrel, the being of a tree, the being of a person, but what is being itself? What, what, what is, and that's metaphysics. So what happened was that the Greeks discovered metaphysics. Metaphysics comes into human history for the first time in the work of Plato and Aristotle. Prior to that, all cultures had been mythological. 
and mythological cultures, um, they, they, they do not see reality as fundamentally rational. So if you go back to, to the, the, mythologic, the mythologies of the ancient Near East and the great civilizations of India and China, all over the world, the myths begin with chaos. They begin with matter and energy, the world in flux. The, and, and then there's this battle between the hero god and the monster symbolizing the forces of chaos. And as a result of the god overcoming the chaos monster, you have the establishment of uh, order. So the crops grow and the seasons follow each other the way they're supposed to, and the, the agricultural uh, life is sustained and possible. And worship is all about getting the gods to keep on holding back the forces of chaos so that organized society can continue. So this would be, um, you know, this, this is what you, this is the, this is Egypt and, and Mesopotamian uh, mythology um, in the ancient Near East. And it's the same in, in Greek and Roman society, except that something different happens. Uh, beginning with Thales and the other pre-Socratic philosophers, there's a there's a, a search for something, some way of understanding reality as more than just chaos, but as having some order or structure to it. And so there's this the development of the concept of the logos, the rational principle of of Anaximander, uh, uh, Nous, mind, the idea that there's something rational uh, organizing the universe and therefore can be studied. Well, the work of Plato and Aristotle advances this whole idea uh, in, in a tremendous leap forward. For the first time in human history, you have a true metaphysics. And a metaphysics is basically a way of explaining that the, you, the cosmos is fundamentally rational rather than fundamentally chaos. And um, in order for it to be fundamentally rational, there has to be at the heart of it some, something that is rational, some mind directing it all. That's as far as the Greeks got. Um, what happened in, in the early church was this, this, this coming together of the Greek idea of the logos and the rationality of the universe, which was the, the, the beginning, the, 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 the beginning of science, really. And, and then Combined with that was the, the biblical notion of God as the transcendent creator. Now, when those two things fused uh, in the early modern, in the early church period, in, in the, the second, third, and fourth centuries, fifth century, when those two ideas came together, and, and you can see it, by the way, right in the Gospel of John, in the beginning was the Logos. And uh, any Greek philosopher would have said, yeah, that makes sense. In the beginning was the Logos. But what would not have made sense to the Greek philosopher, what the Greek philosopher could never in his wildest imagination have ever dreamed of, was that and the Logos became flesh and dwelt among us. And so when, when you see Jesus Christ as the incarnation of Yahweh, the transcendent creator, when you bring together the, the, the biblical notion of God as the transcendent creator who becomes incarnate with the idea of metaphysics, you now have the basis for uh, a little thing we call Western civilization. And out of that comes Western civilization. And out of it comes modern science, 
classical music and hospitals and monasteries and the university and so many things that we take for granted. Where did all these things come from? They came from this, this explosion uh, that resulted from the coming together of Greek metaphysics and the biblical notion of God. Um, so in Augustine, you see uh, Augustine engaging with the Platonists. Now, people don't realize that in the ancient world, there were a lot of atheists, just like today. There were a lot of materialists. So you had uh, Democritus, you had Lucretius, you have all these people, the, the epic practical atheists, they, they, they said, if there are any gods, they're far away and they don't have any, anything to do with us. Thank you for listening to part one of this conversation with Dr. Carter. Stay tuned for next week's episode as we release part two. Grace and peace. Thank you for listening to the Covenant Podcast. If you've enjoyed this resource or you simply like the Covenant Podcast, head on over to our iTunes page, subscribe, and leave us a review. We are also available via Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, YouTube, and Podbean. Thank you for listening to the Covenant Podcast. Grace and peace to you.